can go back to 1986 when the Tobacco Institute said that the Surgeon General should be investigated for scientific abuse and that scientific integrity was at stake because the Surgeon General was was saying that secondhand smoke was bad. And I don't think that the tobacco industry believed for a moment that it was going to improve its own scientific credibility. What it decided to do was to try to drag down the government's scientific credibility. Sounds like dragging down Dr. Fauci. Exactly. And various groups were formed and they would claim any time any industry was about to be regulated by the government based on science, that this was junk science. And they built up so much cynicism, decades of corporate denial made our country vulnerable and we're suffering for it now. Barbara Fries, author of Industrial Strength Denial, coming up on the Janice Adams Show. First, the news. An email in. Would you be interested in hearing from Barbara Fries, environmental attorney and former Minnesota Assistant Attorney General, author of New York Times notable book, Coal, A Human History, and the newly published Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible? Absolutely. What we're really talking about here is men made powerful by ill-gotten gain, right? The note continues, in her deeply researched new book, Freeze lays out eight illustrative campaigns mounted by business leaders to deny decades of wrongdoing, exposing the tactics that corporations use to cover up the harm they've caused. In these powerful case studies, ranging from the slave trade to fossil fuels, industrial strength denial asks the essential question, how far will industry leaders go to protect their bottom line? Barbara Freeze, how far will industry leaders go to protect their bottom line? Mm. Well, much farther than most of us would like to believe and far enough to really endanger us all. The span of this book begins with a discussion of the slave trade, which gives, I think, a very vivid illustration of how much obvious human suffering people will uh, lie about and and rationalize, uh, and ends with the denial of climate change, which poses a tremendous threat to the entire world, not just our civilization, but the entire natural world and future generations. So um, the the span is, is pretty wide and deep in terms of how far they will go to deny things. And how far do we go in accepting their denials? Well, that's another part of the of the equation that I do try to discuss. I mean, I'm I am partly in this book describing the stories of denial, quoting the actual denials, uh, partly talking about the psychology, and that includes both of those who uh, the psychology of those who are spinning these lies and r- rationalizations, and to to some extent the psychology of those who want to believe them. Uh, one of the things I, I touch on is the fact that people want to believe we live in a just world, and therefore when we hear otherwise, when we see evidence otherwise, we have a reason to deny it. It's very unsettling. And so I think that preference of most people to believe that the world is fair and just and getting better um, makes it harder for them to believe anybody would rationalize the harms and deceive them about harms as grave as the ones I describe in this book. Years ago, there was a book, What's the Matter with Kansas?, And it looked directly at people accepting things and supporting things that were not in their own best interest. Are we seeing some of that? I I think we're definitely seeing that because I think that to a large extent, whether you're you're denying or, or, or accepting something not in your best interest or you're spinning those denials, a lot of it has to do with tribalism, with basic the basic division between us versus them, which is something that neuroscientists have been studying, psychologists have been studying, and, and we realize it is so deeply ingrained in us that it takes practically nothing to trigger it. 
Once you divide groups up into different groups, you can do it randomly. They've done this in laboratories. Uh, immediately, people start to see the other group differently. They start to view facts related to that other group differently. Um, and so imagine if you're not talking about some trivial laboratory division, but you're talking about a division of, of your industry from other industries, your corporation from other corporations, or your political party from the other political party, these deeper tribal divisions. Uh, have profound influence on what we are willing to believe and uh, in terms of, of deceiving ourselves or deceiving each other. This is making me think about a study, a psychological study that was done a while ago of abused children, the behavior of abused children. And they would put the abuser, the parent who was the abuser at one end, of the room, the parent who was not the abuser at the other end of the room, they would bring the child into the room and invariably the child would make a decision which way to go and go toward the abuser. Wow. And when they analyzed that further, it was because the children knew that their survival depended on keeping the abuser happy. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, disturbing. I haven't heard about that research, but it is not surprising because you can imagine uh, the, the need to, to defend yourself uh, depends on yeah. keeping track of the, the potentially harmful one in the room and the powerful one in the room. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have seen research from, even from primates, but I'm almost certain this would be true for humans as well. I mean, from the first category being the non-human primates, where they would like put put um, uh, a sensor on a a little ape's chest, and when the the alpha male went strolling by, the little ape wouldn't look necessarily like it was aware of the alpha male, but its little heart would just start beating like crazy until the alpha male had strolled on past. So, so the little ape looks like it's, it's just minding its own business, but it is keenly aware of the powerful person in the room. And certainly that awareness of power dynamics affects the people in the corporation. They all know uh, who's running things and they know what the company line is and they're going to be very aware of the risk of running counter to that company line. What were your, some of your own beliefs before you began this work? And well, what was the surprise that turned you in this direction? Well, I am an environmental attorney and I worked for a number of years for the state of Minnesota and I ended up um, finding myself litigating the question of climate change against the coal industry. And the reason this happened was that we, in my home state of Minnesota, we were trying to better understand how our energy choices affected the environment. And so we looked at climate change, and the coal industry came to Minnesota. We don't have one of our own. And they brought witnesses who testified that we didn't have to worry about climate change and that it was not going to happen. Or if it did happen, it was going to be mild and pleasant and isn't Minnesota cold? Wouldn't we really like it? And all of those thousands of mainstream scientists claiming otherwise, on whom the whole world had already based a, a treaty, this was not a, even in the 90s a new issue, um, those other scientists were biased. They either had a financial bias or some sinister political bias. Um, and I, even though I was already very concerned about the environment and working to protect it and, and enforce the laws, I had never dealt with climate change. Um, and I will tell you that my first reaction, uh, even though I was representing the state and, and I had evidence that this was a big threat, but my first reaction was to hope that the industry was right. Uh, denial is just so tempting, especially when it is a big, scary fact that you are trying to confront, deciding if you should deal with it. Nobody wants to imagine they're living on a world that's creeping toward catastrophe or, or speeding toward it, maybe now. Um, 
so, you know, I guess I was, I was concerned about the world, concerned about corporate behavior, but still fairly naive, uh, in, in the sense of wanting to deny risk myself and also wanting to deny that an industry would be so cavalier and deceptive and, and try to prevent us from doing the things we need to do to protect our planet and our civilization. Um, and, you know, as I, as I went through that process, I, I sort of, had to realize there is something very profound and powerful going on here and something important that I need to know more about. And then over the years, I would see this denial spreading through society into these um, these, these sort of right-wing think tanks that are promoting the free market, into right-wing media, into the edges of the Republican Party, then taking over the Republican Party, eventually taking over the federal government, um, and so, you know, what surprised me was how long this denial lasted, how quickly it spread, how powerful and divisive it was. Um, and, and I wanted to better understand how people could do that and how societies in the past had confronted that denial and overcome it to the extent that they had. Mm-hmm. So that's what really got me starting to dig into the archives and see how this issue had come up in the past, where it had taken us, how far from reality, and how we had overcome it. In the introduction to your book, you discuss the premise of all of this. Would you read to us from that introduction? It is no surprise that those working for corporations accused of causing harm would deny it. Many of us would be surprised by the lack of such denials. Some people just shrug, viewing the denials with a kind of boys will be boys and corporations will be corporations acceptance. Others shake their heads in condemnation, chalking the denials up to greed. What such resigned acceptance and blanket moral judgment have in common is a failure to take a closer look at this dangerous phenomenon. But corporate denial is worth some serious attention. For one thing, this rich realm of reality distortion offers a revealing window into the human mind. The struggle to understand reality may be interesting, but the struggle to avoid unwelcome realities is fascinating, demanding far more mental acrobatics. When this struggle plays out within a group dynamic, with inventive and motivated groups urging others to accept a skewed view of the facts, sometimes with life-and-death consequences, you have an epic human drama. The body of denials proffered by industry after industry can be seen both as its own genre of fiction and its own subfield of psychology. Moreover, we should study corporate denial because corporations dominate our economy and shape our democracy, and for a huge proportion of Americans, corporate incentives, pressures, norms, and culture govern our work lives. In America, about seven of every ten members of the labor force work for in-profit corporations, and about half of these in businesses of over 500 employees. Picture the output of the nation's workforce as a great river of human effort, skill, and creativity, and then realize that most of this river flows through a corporate setting. Surely we need to better understand how this dominant but artificial form of human organization affects our mental processes and moral behavior, including the extremes of denial it can foster. We're talking to my guest today, Barbara Fries. She is the author of Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. Barbara, how did you choose the eight corporations? As you can imagine, had a lot to choose from. Um, I wanted situations that I knew were going to be very revealing. I wanted cases that as with climate change, had an enormous impact. So I picked uh, campaigns where, uh, with with really only one exception, all of these either deal with harm to millions of people or profound environmental catastrophes. 
Um, I wanted cases where the campaigns lasted for a long time because uh, that would give me both lots of source material and also because it would affect the way the public believed uh, and, and thought about reality. And I think that's an, an important aspect to this. Um, and, and I wanted cases where the evidence was so clear that I did not have to spend time explaining to readers that, yes, tobacco really does cause cancer, and, and folks could automatically understand that those denials really were something other than just reasonable doubt, at least after the first couple decades of evidence. But which of the eight, on the other hand, was the most surprising? Well, I guess maybe I was uh, most surprised when looking at the ozone depletion chapter, um, that is a chapter where it's the only example I have where an industry that was denying the harm eventually said, oh, okay, we get it. We are causing harm and we're going to stop selling this product. And I want to put that in context because it's important. The ozone was being depleted by chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons. They were mm-hmm. used in two ways, in aerosols and then in refrigeration and air conditioning. Um, DuPont was one of the main manufacturers of this chemical. And DuPont's initial reaction was that the burden of proof fell on those claiming harm, that there was no evidence of harm. They had a variety of reasons that were fairly scientific sounding to make people not worry about it. Eventually, there was so much science, including the discovery of a very dramatic ozone hole over Antarctica, that they came around and said, okay, we're going to stop making this product. But there are several important things here to know. First of all, chlorofluorocarbons was not their main product. Uh, they could also manufacture the alternatives and make a lot of money doing that. Uh, secondly, it was very clear that they were going to be, uh, their product was going to be banned because the evidence of ozone depletion had suddenly become so convincing and, and indeed alarming. Uh, and this is a case where the company had said uh, many years earlier, that if there was convincing evidence, they would stop manufacturing their product. So, um, you know, I want to acknowledge that this happened and that itself was a surprise to me. Uh, but I also want to put it in context. And, and even though a company like DuPont that makes many different chemicals could say, we're going to stop making one of these chemicals when confronted with evidence of its harm. What you don't see is, say, the tobacco industry which now accepts that smoking kills people and is addictive, you don't see them deciding they're not going to make and market their product as enthusiastically as possible. Mm -hmm. You don't see in the fossil fuel industry many aspects of which big oil now, for example, now accepts that they are driving global warming and that we have to reduce our emissions. But most of the companies, particularly the big U.S. oil companies, have not pledged to reduce their production of oil. So you, I, I put oil and tobacco in one category where overcoming the denial didn't seem to help the problem. And uh, DuPont in this other category where overcoming the denial did lead to them moving on to another equally lucrative industry, which was the replacement chemicals. I'm interested in the repercussions for corporations, meaning men made powerful by ill-gotten gain, my initial definition of it, and also the repercussions of what the legal system is willing to do about it and what we as everyday citizens have really gone out and said must be done and on what level. So when we come back more with our guest Barbara Fries, author of Industrial Strength Denial, after the break. We're back with our guest, Barbara Fries. She is the author of two books, Coal, A Human History, and her newest book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. 
Barbara, right before the break, we were talking about chemical corporations and what they have or have not done when they realize they're, um, that there was something flawed about their product. You wrote about that in a section on ozone depletion. Can you read that for us now? Sure. Hitching onto existing cultural disputes can expand the size of the team coming to the corporation's defense, bringing important allies into the fight. Darkly hinting or outright claiming that your critics are in league with the nation's enemies is one obvious way to elevate the dispute to a larger plane. George Diamond, president of the Diamond Aerosol Corporation and one of the most conspiratorial of aerosol industry executives, was particularly inclined toward this approach. He wrote in 1975 that politicians are, quote, hysterical and behaving in a suspicious manner, that various pressure groups are, quote, somehow interlinked and are best brainwashed and at worst traitors, unquote, and that the scientists are quote, at best incompetent fools, or at worst are traitors and subscribers to political philosophies hazardous to the public health and well-being. In 1977, Diamond would even more directly connect the dots between critics of his and other industries and the Soviet Union. In the quote at the beginning of this chapter, he is complaining to a local TV crew that, quote, the whole thing unquote, is the work of the KGB, whose goal is to damage our economy and our faith in democratic government. Mom, apple pie, all of that, you know, that's the purpose of the KGB, but it's not our purpose to protect those things. Well, of course, what the industry is trying to do there is to put itself in the category with mom and apple pie and to make what it is concerned about much more important than simply making profits. And I I should point out that there was a difference between the aerosol industry and the chemical industry. The aerosol industry was the one most likely to put itself in the position of, of defending free enterprise against a communist threat through defending deodorant and hairspray. Uh, The chemical industry was a little bit more sophisticated about their denials, and they used more um, scientific responses and and burden of proof arguments, so they were a little bit more subtle, and I think, frankly, a little bit more effective than the aerosol industry was. Mm. The question is always, with these conversations, where do we go from here? And... My question in this is, where have we gone? Is our legal system really equipped to handle this issue? Well, no, (laughs) is the short answer. I think the other question is, is our political system set up to change our legal system so that it is equipped? I I take some comfort in the fact that at least three different times in the last century, or I I should say in the 20th century, We've seen a backlash against corporate power, and it has mattered. We saw the trust-busting work of of Theodore Roosevelt during the Progressive Era, and that really did help reduce the power of the corporations that were then causing the most abuse. We saw the New Deal under FDR, and that really did help reduce the abuses of the financial industry and do all sorts of other things to reduce corporate power. And then after World War II, when we saw lots of threats emerging to the environment and consumers, we saw a movement, and this was mainly in the 60s and 70s, putting in place all kinds of consumer laws and environmental laws, and they really did make a big difference. But in, uh, I would say, 1980, the election of Reagan, we saw uh, the pendulum swinging the other way toward corporate power and against regulating corporations. Uh, I am hoping that pendulum is now about to swing back again uh, for, for a fourth time. And so when I'm looking on the bright side here, uh, that, that's something I see. Certainly, there is a lot more uh, skepticism now about corporate power. Um, and 
one thing is, you know, I think our, our hand is simply being forced here by the fact that climate change has been denied for so long that now it is way too late to imagine that it could be solved simply through market forces, for example. It's possible if we had tinkered with those market forces and put a price on carbon around, you know, 1980, 1990, um, that we could have slowly gone away from fossil fuels and had, and really made huge progress in confronting the climate crisis because the people who claim to be the most enthralled by market forces blocked putting a price on carbon those market forces could not be used to solve the climate crisis. So now we're in a situation where we really are going to need something much more aggressive and it's going to have to be something done by government, something like the Green New Deal, although that's a fairly uh, vague term at this point, but, but it's going to have to be something direct and aggressive that can dramatically reduce our emissions, dramatically reduce our use of fossil fuels first in the next decade, but really continuing throughout this century, getting us down to zero by mid-century, and then getting us into negative emissions in the second half of the century, which is going to be particularly difficult. Corporations are people. The legal system is us. I'm wondering if we are prepared to deal with it, and especially as we take this during the COVID crisis, when far too many people are willing to go along with the idea when they know otherwise that they don't have to wear something as simple as a mask, how equipped is, I'll be specific, is American society, do we have a sufficiently well-educated electorate? Do we have a sufficiently well motivated moral system that will look at that. This seems to me an indictment of American culture. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly share a, a lot of that. Um, I, I do try to hang on to some hope that we can move forward, but here, here are some of the concerns. I mean, American culture is uniquely focused on the, the idea of a free market, uh, American culture is uniquely fixated on the idea that, that government is not your friend, it's going to hurt you, um, and therefore it shouldn't be regulating the free market. And of course, we have a particularly strong belief in the individual rather than in social forces. Um, on the other hand, we are a very divided nation. And it isn't both sides of the divide that that share that reluctance to uh, regulate companies and to make the sacrifices needed for the social good. And certainly at other times in our history, Americans have stepped up and, and made sacrifices. And, and you can think about World War II, for example, not just the people who went to fight, but the sacrifices made on the home front. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are a lot of people still who are quite willing to do what it has what has to be done for the for the larger good um to uh, to be more specific about corporations i think that we are to the point now where the majority really is more than willing to see much stronger regulation of corporate abuses uh they're just not at power at the moment um but i think if we shift toward uh, a more democratic society, and I think there are forces insisting upon that, uh, we, we will see things change. One of the, the problems with a herd mentality uh, is, of course, it's, it's difficult to ever change people's minds because they believe what the herd believes. But once the herd shifts, then a lot of minds change all at once. And, and so you sort of reach a, a tipping point where there can be dramatic changes. Again, I'm, I'm hoping we're reaching that tipping point fairly soon where mm -hmm. people are, are recognizing we need a lot of reforms. We need reforms uh, to our government system, which is way too gov governed and dominated by corporate power. We need uh, reforms of the corporate system generally to try to put in place things that will reduce uh, the, the willingness of, of people in these corporations to cause harm and then deny that harm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, 
you know, because we are such social creatures, and that is one of the themes of my book, even though it may seem at times that it is impossible for us to make the sacrifices or just the reforms, they don't even need to be sacrifices, uh, just to make the changes that we need to make, um, societies do shift. We shift each other through information, through our experience. And so I keep my fingers crossed that we'll be shifting in the right direction. It's not quite the same thing, but I remember the turning the bend on the AIDS crisis. The nonsense that came out of the administration's mouth, totally offensive, refusing to acknowledge that it was an illness and that people were really dying. And it boiled down to whose lives matter. And we didn't really change that narrative as a society until certain people died of AIDS. When the actor Rock Hudson, who it was revealed as this great romantic film hero was actually a gay man, when a man as beloved as that was seen to be so decimated by the illness that changed some of the narrative. For these issues that we're raising, water in Flint, Michigan, my goodness, that's one where you can clearly see that it's a Black Lives Matter issue. Whose lives have to matter for this to make a change? Whose lives have mattered to make some of the changes in any one of these eight corporations. Boy, I think the, the one example that illustrates your point the best is with the radium industry. Radium at the beginning of the 20th century and, and really picking up in the, in the 19-teens and 1920s was used in two different industries. One, it was used as a health fad. People were sold uh, on the idea of drinking this incredibly radioactive and dangerous substance and told it would make them feel better. Uh, so it was sold as a, in bottles as a drink. You could inject it. There were lots of products that included radium. At the same time, it was used in glow-in-the-dark paint. So it was put into paint, painted on watches, and then you could see your watch in the dark. So that was a, you know, it was a useful industry. They hired very young women, like girls, 15-year-olds, to paint the radium paint onto the watch dials. They taught them to point the paintbrushes with their lips. And of course, they ended up consuming lots of radium. And then eventually, some of them got gruesomely sick, their facial bones starting to dissolve. uh, And they ended up in the newspapers and the headlines. There was a lot of attention to them, uh, to, to these young women, these young working class women dying. And yet, all of that attention did not seem to affect the people who were drinking the radium drinks and still being sold it it as a health fad. But in the early 30s, a very rich industrialist man who had enough money to buy lots of radium drinks and poison himself very thoroughly uh, drank so much of it that he died again in the headlines. And again, his facial bones started to rot. His jaw had to be removed. It was a gruesome death and it got a lot of attention. That death put an end to this industry, or at least it, it put it into a, a death spiral, so to speak. And, and pretty quickly then people were no longer buying this product, at least not to make them healthy. Mm. Barbara, what made you decide to become an attorney and specifically an environmental attorney? I was a kid when Earth Day came along in in 1970, and I was very influenced by that. Um, I was very concerned about pollution generally and and trying to figure out a way that uh, we could, you know, sail forward and and not find ourselves poisoned and and losing the the species and the habitat. So I guess it was kind of a a childhood fear slash idealism where, you know, I I was worried about the future. I felt we all had a role to try to make it better. And, um, you know, I I talked and argued a lot as a kid. So there was some suggestion (laughs) that uh, maybe I should go into law. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, also, I really was inspired by the 
the environmental movement, by the consumer movement. I met Ralph Nader when I was in college and then later on worked for one of his organizations working on workplace exposure to to chemicals. Um, So I, I became very interested in science, very interested in corporate responsibility and interested in ways that we could, using the tools of our democracy, try to reduce the the threats that they posed. And your transition to being an author and advocate and agitator, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I was an assistant attorney general, and that's when I confronted the coal industry and their denial of climate change. And I saw for the first time the, the true threat of that. I had always also wanted to be a writer. And um, when I was younger, actually, I I distinctly had to choose. And and I made this very plain to myself. I I sat up on a a cliff and looked off in the distance, and I had to ask myself, do I want to go into writing or do I want to go into law? And I decided I wanted to go into law because at that time, and I was 20, I suppose, I didn't think I had anything to say. I didn't feel like I had enough to write about. So I went into law. I did environmental work. I confronted climate change and the coal industry. And suddenly I felt, wow, I do have something to say. And ultimately then, it took, took me a few years, but I did leave the Attorney General's office in order to write my first book about coal. After that came out, I wanted to continue my environmental work, so I did. I went back again and did a lot of legal and policy work in the nonprofit sector, trying to prevent the construction of new coal plants and, and um, trying to advance climate protection laws and clean energy. Um, and and then eventually decided it was time once again to to dive back into writing and particularly to tackle this really tough nut of corporate denial, which now, of course, I've seen in so many different industries. Mm -hmm. But it begins with your book, Coal. Can you read something from Coal for us? So Coal, I started out thinking about its current issues, and I thought, well, I'll write a chapter of history, and then I'll write a book about the environmental impact of coal. But I got so fascinated by the history that I ended up writing a book that was essentially an environmental history, so environmental themes throughout. Um, so this is this is a, a, about the beginning of what would be known as the city of Pittsburgh. Shortly after the British seized the forks, they built a fort there named after their prime minister, William Pitt, and began digging coal out of the hill across the river. Pittsburgh was born, a remote outpost on a still turbulent frontier, but already burning the fuel of the Industrial Revolution. In Britain, it had taken centuries to go from forested wilderness to industrial metropolis. Pittsburgh, like so much of what would become the United States, would experience that history in concentrated form, propelled in no small part by the concentrated energy beneath its hills. The trading village of Pittsburgh grew throughout the years of the Revolutionary War, and in 1786 boasted the first newspaper west of the mountains. A local booster praised the glories of Pittsburgh, including its, quote, vegetable air constantly perfumed with aromatic flavor, unquote, and its ample fuel supplies. The author predicted audaciously and accurately that this tiny village, some 20 days from Philadelphia by pack horse, would someday be one of the greatest manufacturing centers in the world. Within four short years, the town had progressed far enough in that direction to inspire its first recorded pollution complaint. In 1790, a visitor reported that it was the muddiest place he'd ever seen, quote, by reason of using so much coal being a great manufacturing place and kept in so much smoke and dust as to affect the skin of its inhabitants. At the time, Pittsburgh had 376 residents. Wow. And what do we say and know about Pittsburgh and coal now? 
Now it's much, much better because they have largely d- reduced their consumption of coal. And of course, many of the industries that had, uh, that would in, in the 1800s and early 1900s pollute the air, uh, have now either closed or moved, um, or switched to cleaner fuels in some cases. But Pittsburgh is, is clearly much, much better than it was. By the way, part of that is that in, in the early 20th century, there were a variety of women's groups throughout the country, usually middle-class women who had the leisure to be civically involved. And there was a movement they called municipal housekeeping. And it was those women's groups who insisted on things like, let's have a sewer system, let's bring in clean water, let's pick up the garbage. And they insisted, let's try to at least burn our coal more cleanly so we don't have this appalling pollution. So they really did drive an early version of the environmental movement, putting in place clean air laws. Um, unfortunately, when World War I came along, most of those laws were ignored because, as was said at the time, war means smoke. And the health of the people uh, took the back seat. The economic well-being, a lack of it, of the Pittsburgh area, where is that now? I can tell you certainly that the coal regions, uh, and this would include western Pennsylvania, eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, they are definitely suffering because coal is in steep decline. And it is in steep decline for a variety of reasons, one of which is that uh, the the utilities who own the power plants that provide the power um, are, have recognized that they can get cheaper power, first of all, through renewables, and, and that's wonderful, but also through natural gas, which uh, makes the air cleaner, but might not actually help us with the climate crisis very much, uh, because the process of getting that natural gas and transporting it puts a lot of uh, methane into the air just by leakage. And that methane itself is a profound uh, greenhouse gas. It, it warms the atmosphere way more even than carbon dioxide. So ironically, the switch from coal to natural gas largely driven in many places by climate concerns has not gone nearly far enough and might not have done much at all, depending on how much of this leakage there is. And unfortunately, we just don't know. One thing that is quite clear, though, is we simply do not have time for this, for for natural gas, even if we see it as a less uh, polluting fuel, because we have to make such dramatic reductions now in our emissions. And that means we're going to have to go all in investing in, in renewables and clean energy. The Trump administration has done its very best to try to keep the coal industry alive and, and has tried to change some laws to keep the remaining coal plants going, which is astonishing, of course, because for the most part, they've been arguing that they have to do these things out of respect for the market. And this is a very blatant interference in, in the so-called free market. No easy problems, no easy solutions, but simplicity is never the answer. (laughs) We'll be back with our guest, Barbara Free. She is the author of Industrial Strength Denial. After the break. We're back with our guest, Barbara Freeze. She is an environmental attorney and the author of two books, Coal, A Human History, and her new book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. It's interesting, you begin the book with the story that otherwise many may not think of, but definitely does belong here, of the slave trade. Would you read to us something from that section of the book? A slave trader described the slaves' general eagerness to be purchased. Some feared they would be eaten when first brought on board, he explained, quote, but from when kind treatment and the attention paid to their health and accommodation and comfortable living on board, such apprehensions are removed, they are quite at ease and cheerful and happy, unquote. 
a former slave ship captain told an official inquiry. After they eat, quote, they are supplied with pipes and tobacco. They are amused with instruments of music peculiar to their own country. And when tired of music and dancing, they then go to games of chance. The repeated mention of slaves dancing on the ships was particularly perverse. To exercise them, one crew member testified the crew would use a whip to force them to move to the beat of a drum, though they could only jump and rattle their chains. In an extreme example of industrial euphemism, the crews actually did call this whip-driven movement dancing. One crew member's job was to, quote, dance the women, while another would, quote, dance the men. The sentence that awakened me to this was, it's in almost every case, the story begins with an exciting discovery of, for example, a new world, a new element, or chemical, a new means of mass production, or a new way of packaging financial risk. But then I, because we are talking about corporations, denial, it made me think that the greatest denial of all was that idea that so much of this is being the exciting discovery that is the, quote, new world. And there could not be a greater denial than that. And now you've read this section from the book on the transatlantic slave trade. We know the same language was repeated in how grateful people were to be on plantations once they got to the United States. We get how grateful people are during the Jim Crow era to be segregated. We get it on and on. We're even getting it again in the law and order backlash fervor for having to come to grips with not just hearing about a police murder, but actually watching it take place eight minutes and 46 seconds of an officer sitting on the neck of a man and his fellow officers letting him do it. So here we are. We go back to this question, or I go back to this question, about our willingness, our complicity in these denials. And I guess... In the closing moments we have, I'd like you to take us beyond my questions <laughs> into what's next, where do we go from here, and what should we be looking for from you to guide us? <laughs> well, oh boy. Well, let, let me say in response to what you were, you were talking about, the, one, one of the things when I was writing the chapter about the slave trade was that that I was really rather surprised by the fact that the abolition movement, and and I was focusing in Britain at the time because they dominated the transatlantic slave trade, the abolition movement in Britain was actually remarkably successful in turning public opinion against the slave trade, and they did that in two ways. One was by directly confronting the dehumanization of the Africans by, and in fact, they had a slogan, they had this this little image of a, of a slave in chains saying, am I not a man and a brother? So they were, they were directly confronting the idea that this was not a human being. And they were presenting all kinds of evidence of harm. They were showing the torture instruments. They were bringing forth testimony from the slave ships. If you think about what happened with the George Floyd video and Black Lives Matter. I mean, the, the term Black Lives Matter is, in my mind, a, an echo of, am I not a man? I mean, it is a direct challenge to that dehumanization. And the video itself is the evidence of how much harm is being done to this man. So my hope is that in the way that abolitionists were able to change society's understanding of slavery in in the late 1700s and early 1800s, I, I hope now we are seeing Black Lives Matter and the actual video evidence that people wanted to deny but no longer could, changing the way people see racial justice now.
So I guess to the extent that I, I'm always hoping for change, I hope it comes from people who are, first of all, appealing to us on a moral level and also confronting us with evidence. Mm-hmm. And between, you know, talking to our hearts and our heads, maybe that is what happens to bring forth change. And so as far as what I will be doing with respect to, you know, to the larger questions of, of, of justice and, and appealing to, to hearts and minds, um, it will be to continue probably going back and forth between writing and working on climate change issues and, and trying to prevent or, or trying to, let me say this, accelerate our shift away from fossil fuels. That's what I see myself doing. You know, when one of the denials we haven't spoken about is, of course, what happened and what's been done to Native Americans. I'm thinking that in only 400 years of Europeans being on this continent, what has happened versus thousands of years of Native Americans protecting the environment and the lessons that should be, could be learned from them. Where are we on recognizing that? Well, yeah, alas, those those lessons have been overlooked for a long time. But one thing I think that is really interesting and encouraging is the role that the various tribes are playing in blocking the expansion and the continued investment in fossil fuels by, for example, uh, blocking the pipelines um, and just trying to, you know, stop Keystone, the Dakota yes. Access Pipeline and mm-hmm. pipelines here in Minnesota. They've been, they've been very active and they're doing it both in the name of pre- protecting their own land, their own water supplies, their own resources, and in the name of protecting the climate. And that you know, I think a few years ago, I would not have imagined that their activism would have been as successful as it has been. And it is encouraging to see that it's happening. Mm -hmm. So, so much more to learn, so much more to do. Barbara Fries, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. My thanks to Barbara Fries and to you for joining us today. For the podcast and for more information about today's show, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.